Our text this morning is Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Our topic is Jesus and his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. The title of our message is Blood, Sweat, and Prayers. Verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling on the ground. When he arose from prayer and come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for these words, as we always do for the word of God. But Lord, a really intimate peek into a a very private conversation between you and your son when he was on the earth. And we thank you for that. And I pray that we would deal with it reverently but at the same time understand everything that there is to know about it for us this morning so that our hearts lord would be drawn to the savior to jesus christ that that those of us who know you would fall in love with you again and again this morning several times this morning as we think about your grace and your mercy and if there be anyone in this place lord that doesn't know you they've never seen you as their savior from sin they're they're not really aware of the depth of their sin and their own hard-heartedness i pray that you would break them open this morning lord in that gentle way that you have by your spirit draw them to yourself that they would declare their love for you their need for you lord as well we pray these things in jesus name and everyone said amen Sin City used to be a synonym for Las Vegas. It might surprise you to learn that Vegas has dropped down to number three on the list of the world's most sinful cities. Number five on the list is a place I've never heard of. It's called Gate Crasher in England. It's a music festival described as, and I quote, sweat, drugs, and alcohol. What more could you want? Amsterdam, Holland is the number four Sin City. You can smoke pot or hashish in its coffee shops. Prostitution has been legal there since the year 1815. One interesting fact, while prostitution is legal and tourists of all ages are encouraged to tour the famous red light district, taking photographs anywhere in that section is strictly illegal. Las Vegas now occupies the number three position. Although they are trying hard to regain their status as the number one sin city with their recent ad campaign that states, whatever happens in Vegas, they're doing a pretty good job. (laughs) New Orleans is the second most sinful city in the world. It helps if you have Mardi Gras. By the way, although many people think that Hurricane Katrina was God's judgment upon that sinful city, The fact is the worst parts of that city, the most sinful parts, were spared from destruction. And so your theology is off. (laughs) The real sin city, number one on the list, is a place called Pattaya in Thailand. Government officials refer to their own city as the sexual Disneyland of the world. 
The list highlights the attraction of those places for people whose desires are illegitimate, but legalized. Those who go to Pattaya, for example, seeking to sin are not entering into a city so much as they are entering into a place of temptation with plans to yield to it and indulge themselves. If you are a Christian, there are many temptations in the world. Some are in cities like these, but some are right here in our own cities. Some are in your home or your office or your school. It'd be nice if they were clearly marked with signs that said now entering temptation. So you would recognize them and hopefully resist them. Well, Jesus spoke to his disciples about temptation almost as if it were a place on the map. In verse 39, he encouraged them to not enter into temptation as if it were a place that could be recognized. And then in verse 46, Jesus exhorted them to resist temptation when they found themselves surrounded by it. Jesus said you would recognize and resist temptation if you pray. Seems simple enough. And yet we see that his disciples slept when they ought to have prayed. It's a challenge to us to develop a little spiritual insomnia out in the world of temptation. We'll try and stay awake by organizing our thoughts around two points. Number one. Pray ahead of time and you will recognize the entrance into temptation. And number two, pray at the time and you will resist entering into temptation. First of all, let's take a look at verses 39 through 43. Pray ahead of time and you will recognize the entrance into temptation. Temptation is all around you. You cannot really avoid it. Even if you could live in a place totally sheltered from the world and its influence like Riverdale, You'd find a strong source of temptation from within your own heart. You cannot avoid being tempted, but you do not have to yield to it and thus enter into it. Jesus initial encouragement is to recognize temptation. And so in verse 39 coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed and his disciples also followed him. They just finished the Lord's Supper. They were coming out of the upper room and they're going to and getting to the Mount of Olives. Now, this account in the Gospel of Luke is more condensed than the ones you find in Mark and Matthew. For example, Luke tells you only that Jesus was on the Mount of Olives. He doesn't even mention that the particular spot was the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke was inspired to use these particular words. While it's good to have the whole picture and to understand the overall context of what's going on, nothing wrong with knowing that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Sometimes it is profitable to focus on just the specific words and details provided by a particular Bible author. For one thing, let me just suggest one reason. I found over the years that I tend to add to a Bible account my own understanding Sometimes it's wrong. Every year at Christmas time, I try gently to shatter myths that we have about Christmas and what actually occurred. For example, I always tell you, I'll tell you ahead of time so you can cry over it now, that Mary did not either. Well, we don't know that Mary rode a donkey into Bethlehem. The Bible nowhere says that she rode a donkey. And yet we 
have seen so many manger scenes. We've seen so many cartoons. We've seen it depicted so many times. And then in our own sympathy, we can't imagine that she would walk along pregnant, that we believe that that's there. And we have a tendency. I mean, it's not the biggest thing in the world. But when we read the, the Christmas story, we put a donkey there. There is no donkey there. Maybe an elephant, but not a donkey. No, a little political humor there. But anyway, <laughs> I had to tell you because you wouldn't have got it until later. And then <laughs> anyway, uh, so the, but the thing is, it's amazing how often we add things to the word of God, not in a sinful way, not because we're false teachers, not to to, you know, to do any of that. But we just we have our own understanding of things. And and sometimes it's good to get back and say, what what words are used? What is this author telling us? And then it does open up many wonderful thoughts about uh, the Lord and, and the spiritual message that he has for us. And so just a word to the wise. Now, it was Jesus' custom to go out to the Mount of Olives at the end of each day's ministry that final week in Jerusalem. He and his disciples camped out there at night. It was really like a mini retreat filled with praying to his father in heaven. Overnight. Weekend or even week-long retreats can be spiritually uplifting. But so can these mini-retreats. And you can have them every day, if you like. You can even have them several times a day. Some of you might have a reasonable job where you can have a break. Anybody know what that means? You can go on a break where, by law, they have to give you a few minutes. And you might want to check into that, by the way. Anyway, uh, and, and, and you can have, really, you can have a little miniature retreat with God on your break. You can do it right in front of people. As you go into the break room and whip out your Bible uh, and just start reading a passage. Or you can go kind of hide someplace and just spend some time with the Lord. Uh, and I would encourage you to do this. I mean, we're not able often to get away overnight or for the week or whatever. And we kind of sometimes there's a lot of pressure on people. They think that they have to go on a retreat and they're they're unable to or they can't make the retreat or whatever. Have a bunch of mini retreats. Have them every day, all the time, spending time with the Lord. Jesus teaches us that. Then in verse 40, when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Before Jesus agonized in prayer, he was thinking of his disciples. This is amazing to me that even in his hour of great need, Jesus came to serve, not to be served. He was facing in a minute, as we've seen in our reading, this intense agony of, of spirit, mind and body. And yet he thought of his followers. And he was concerned for them and he gave instruction to them. Now, Jesus gave them an assignment and he made an assessment of their surroundings. The assessment was that they were surrounded by temptation. So the assignment was to pray that they may not enter into it. Neither the assessment nor the assignment has changed. Temptation is all around us in the world. And it is from within us, from what the Bible calls our flesh. Add to the world and our flesh the reality that there is a devil whose spiritual forces are against us. It all seems so overwhelming. Jesus confidently tells us that we can recognize temptation if we will pray. He didn't seem to have in mind any special kind of praying. As I hope to suggest to you in a moment, his particular praying in the garden was unique to his situation. He wasn't saying we should pray like he was about to pray totally different. He was just saying, hey, you guys need to be in prayer. 
You need to pray because temptation is all around you and it's from within you and you need to be preparing for what's coming. He's simply encouraging us to get into the habit of regular conversation with our father in heaven. Jesus knew exactly what was coming that night and the following day. He would be betrayed, arrested, tried several times, beaten and crucified. All of his disciples would be severely tempted. One at least would deny him three times. They should pray ahead of time so that they would recognize the temptations and not enter into them. You know, I probably wouldn't have gotten it either. But when Jesus said, pray that you may not enter into temptation, it was a warning. It was a signal. It was an understanding that, guys, something is coming. And the answer to it is to pray now for when it arrives. Jesus knows your afternoon. He knows your evening. He knows all of your tomorrows. And he's telling you right now to pray, to regularly converse with your father in heaven so that you will be spiritually prepared to recognize the temptations you will be in and therefore be able to resist them. You can wait to pray after you're assaulted by temptation. We'll see that in verses 45 and 46. But it's always better to be prepared ahead of time. You might start calling prayer pre-prayer. You're preparing, if you can say that. I said it. You're preparing for what's coming. Man, that's a tough one. Peter Piper prepared. No. We are privileged to see Jesus in one of the most intimate spiritual moments of his life. Let's take a look at it reverently. In verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed. Now, I'm told that the most common posture for prayer at that time among the Jews was not to kneel, but to stand looking towards heaven. Jesus kneeling posture reveals to us really that the weight of the burden is upon him. And so we don't we would read that and think, oh, yeah, Jesus went to prayer. And so he hit his knees. And that's what really spiritual people do. But that's not so in their culture. You stood and prayed. And so if you prayed on your knees, it was the posture of a person who was weighed down, a posture of somebody who was burdened. Now, by the way, uh, it's happened to me and it, maybe it's never happened to you. But a lot of times I've fallen asleep praying. Well, that happens a lot when you're laying in bed. You, know, you wait to pray until you go to bed. You're laying there and you think, oh, I'll spend some time in. Of course, I'm asleep by 830 now on the couch. Pam has to say, Gene, are you asleep? No, no, I'm all, right, I'm all right, really. You're asleep. No, I'm not. And then I'm a liar. I'm asleep and I'm a liar, you know, and then I have to. But anyway, so so, you know, or 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 we you know, maybe, at a, you know, you're at a prayer meeting and, and or you're in church and you just you kind of your eyes are closed and you're you don't mean for your head to be bowed. But pretty soon it is. And you're snoring away. Really embarrassing to snore at a prayer meeting. But but so because we have this idea of how people should pray. And, and usually you'll see this. People say, well, let's pray. And everybody's head goes down and their eyes close as if there's a reverence to it. If you said to a Jew, let's pray, they would stand up and look to God. And so this may sound silly, but if you have trouble staying awake when you pray, stand up and pray. Very few of us can sleep standing up. I can, but I actually have to be really, really tired. And then when I you only do this maybe once or twice and then you get up again, you know, because you hit the ground pretty hard. But but uh, if you have trouble falling asleep doing spiritual things, then stand up when you do them. Verse 42, Father, if it is your will, 
take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, the cup is a pictorial reference to God's wrath against and judgment upon sin. It's pictured as a cup that keeps filling until it finally will be poured out on the human race. Jesus asked his father to take this cup away. And that's because he was about to take upon himself all of our sins, the sins of the whole human race, so that his father could pour that cup of his wrath and judgment upon all sin upon him. The Bible in one place says that Jesus was made sin for us, that, that in, in that time on the cross, he was in a, in a sense made to be sin for us so that God's judgment could fall upon him. He would be our substitute. He would be our sacrifice and he would satisfy the wrath and judgment of God. There's a depth of suffering by our Lord that we cannot ever begin to comprehend. But it's revealed in a very real desire he had to avoid it if there were any other way that a person might be saved. You know, Christians are often criticized because they are exclusive. They say, along with Jesus, that he is the way, the truth and the life that no one can come to salvation, to the father, to heaven, except through him. And it seems to it seems to be an insult to other religions to, uh, you know, uh, other philosophies to other good people who are trying their best. And the way I like to just put this into focus is here. Here's here's some choices that God had. He says, I can I can become uh, a, a human being. I can be God in human flesh. I can uh, suffer excruciating torture and torment, both spiritually and physically. I can die for the sins of the world. On the cross. And, and people can believe that and be saved. Or they can just be generally good people. And I'll say, okay, that seems good enough for me. So just do whatever you want. Well, no, it, it, it's insane. It would make God stupid if that was his way of doing things. See, we have this idea that somehow Christianity is a Western religion that we've developed. I guess we forgot that Jesus was Jewish and it started in the Middle East, for one thing. And, and we, we've so taken it over that the world thinks of the West as Christian and the East as Muslim. And we have all these weird ideas. There's only one way to God. It's, it's the way that God revealed in the Garden of Eden when he said, you've sinned and I have to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to come into your reality as a man and die for what you did. Everything after that is man's religion, man's attempt to say, we don't want that. We don't want your work on our behalf. We want our own work. We're going to do something to please you because we're generally good people. We're, we're going to find the God principle within us or the spark of the divine or whatever you want to call it. And, and that's the difference. It's, it's, it is biblical Christianity versus everything else that's out there. Christianity didn't start even with Jesus Christ on earth. It started before the world was ever created. It started in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit determining that they would create mankind and make a way for us to be saved after we fell. And so this is what's happening as Jesus uh, is praying to his father. Now, Jesus was God, 
But in his mission as savior of the world, he modeled submission to his father in heaven. As a man, he might will that that cup be taken away. Think of it. The cup of the wrath of God for his punishment upon all the sin of all the world. Who would want to take that upon themselves? Especially a sinless, perfect God-man. But in the context of the greater good, he submitted to that plan. Prayer is always discovering God's will. It is never demanding my will. God's will is always a perfect will. My will, by definition, I don't know what's best for me. Verse 43, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. Luke is the only writer who mentions the angel. If you need to be touched by an angel, one will be revealed to you. They're all around you anyway. The truth is, and I want to say this carefully, most of our suffering doesn't require such a lofty revelation. Now, I admit I haven't suffered very much in my life. What I think is suffering you'd laugh at. But I've been around a lot of people who've suffered tremendously, greatly, in emotional ways, spiritual ways, physical ways. Still, it's all common to the human race. Most of us only suffer in ways that are common. If there is some kind of amazing, uncommon suffering, God could send you an angel. And I believe that there are people in history and throughout history, and maybe you're here and you don't want to tell anybody, you know, God sent you an angel one time. Who knows? I'm not against that. I'm just saying that it's not a necessity. What it does for us as we read the text is it gives us a visible presence of God's invisible resources. In other words, Jesus prayed and God dispatched an angel to represent that every resource of heaven was available to Jesus Christ to what? To endure his time on earth, to go through what it was he had to go through. And it's a reminder to us that God will give you everything and anything you and I need in our time of greatest need, in our time of deepest suffering. We have all the invisible resources of heaven, grace and mercy and anything else that we need. Verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is the only use of the word agony in the Gospels. Jesus praying in the garden may hold lessons for us in some ways, but it was unique to Jesus. Earlier, I mentioned him as being made sin for us. The Bible sometimes explains it by using an illustration from the world of banking. Think of yourself as having a spiritual bank account, but in it, all you find are your sins, past, present, and future. That's the only uh, currency that you have is your own sin. In Jesus also has a spiritual bank account in it is perfect righteousness and it can never be depleted. When you realize that you're a sinner in need of saving and you receive Jesus as your savior from sin, his perfect righteousness is immediately transferred into your account. Your sin is withdrawn from your account and it's put on him. The word the Bible uses to describe this transaction is imputed. Your sin is imputed to Jesus his righteousness is imputed to you, and that's how you can be saved. And that's the only way that you can be saved. Are you still a sinner? Sure. But God 
sees you in Jesus Christ because you're trusting him for your salvation. He gives you by his grace through faith imputed righteousness so that he can justify you so that you can stand before the Lord. Scholars debate whether or not Jesus literally sweat great drops of blood because Luke, who was a physician, used the word like to describe the sweating. There is a medical condition that I can't pronounce in which physical stress causes tiny blood vessels to rupture and blood is excreted with your sweat. It's likely Jesus did sweat blood. There's an interesting comparison in his sweating. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, one of the things God told him was that in the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. We associate sweating with work and with exertion. All that Adam's work and exertion could produce was sweat. Now in another garden at another time, Jesus is sweating blood to overcome Adam's sin and to reverse the curse that had brought upon mankind and God's creation. It's a reminder to us that our own works, our own sweat will not get us into heaven. We need the blood of Jesus Christ as a man shed on our behalf. Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane is unique. It is the agony of God in human flesh. It is the way a person who is fully God and fully human prays as he is facing death on the cross to be made sin for the human race. Jesus bowed low under the burden. He bled as it pressed upon him. It's no coincidence that he was on the Mount of Olives, which would have been dotted with presses that were used to extract the oil from the olives by pressing them and crushing them. During his unique agony, the Lord thought of his disciples, including you and I. He told us to pray ahead of time so that we would recognize the temptations all around us and from within us and not enter into them. How did his disciples respond? They slept. Jesus was gracious and told them in verses 45 and 46, pray at the time and you will resist entering into temptation. Now, these guys were not ready for what was coming, but the Lord still encouraged them to pray. If you are not prepared for temptation and you don't recognize it, Jesus says you can still pray to resist it. It's not too late. And so in verse 45, when he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Only Luke mentions that they were sleeping from sorrow. It's not to excuse them, but it is a tender insight. Jesus had described his own death and what a what a burden that was becoming to his disciples who were expecting the kingdom of God, who had given and left everything to follow him, who believed in his message. Then he had told them one among them would betray him. He specifically told Peter that he would deny him three times. These guys reacted with an understandable sorrow and it led them to a physical exhaustion. Listen, Some of the things Jesus tells you throughout your life are going to bring you sorrow. There's there's no doubt about it. Your loved ones are going to die. You're going to get sick, sometimes incurably. I don't need to go on listing all the potentially terrible things that can and will come upon us as we live in this fallen world in our bodies that are really rotting flesh. You react with understandable sorrow, just like the disciples did. And it can lead to one of two paths. 
It can lead to an exhaustion that we sometimes call depression. Where they're just... Everything is just crushing in on us. We can't take another step. We're just, we're like that little rock in the commercial. In those depression commercials that we're just hiding in our cave or uh, what I like about that little rock is he, he's kind of the star of several commercials, some for depression, some, you know, he just doesn't like to be around people. I mean, he has a lot of problems, that little rock. (laughs) But it's true. I mean, this is what happens. We get crushed. We get pressed. And what happens? Well, you can either be overwhelmed or you can overcome sleeping here, I think, is a picture to us of being overwhelmed. When you sleep, what happens? You close your eyes. You don't know what's happening around you. You fall into yourself. You have nothing but your own thoughts and dreams to distract you for a while. And that's a picture of how some people react to the stresses of life. Even Christians, they withdraw into themselves They look at themselves and they try and figure out what's wrong with themselves. And when they go to get help from people, those people are trying to to tell them what's wrong with them. And and they give them different medicines to make them feel better. And they go through all of these different things. And on the surface, it all seems so compassionate. It's a recognition of, oh, you poor, terrible person. The sorrow is just so overwhelming. I don't know how you can handle it. And. Here, take some drugs. This will make you feel better eight hours at a time. Jesus said, stand up and overcome it. He said to them, why do you sleep? Why look into yourself? Why close your eyes to it? Why think your own thoughts? Why have your own dreams? He says, get up and pray lest you enter into temptation. Jesus is hardcore. He's serious. Now, remember, he's the one who told them what was coming. You guys are in for it. You, if you guys only knew what was coming, you would pray. And so why don't you pray? Because it's coming. And then they didn't. They slept. They were overwhelmed with sorrow. And he said, okay, guys, pray. That's still the answer. You know, a lot of times we have given up on the spiritual disciplines. We get into a place in our life where life again is overwhelming it's crushing it's a burden and we think i've prayed about it i've sought all the spiritual resources that are available to me and i'm still in this place i need something else and really a lot of times what we're saying is prayer doesn't work for me i know jesus said to pray and that he would send an angel if necessary but i i just am not feeling it I need something more. I need professional help. I don't need the help of the Son of God who created me and loved me and died for me and rose from the dead. I don't need that. I need professional help. And in that context, it sounds silly, but when you're going through it, it sounds so profound. And really, I think sometimes we need to admit to ourselves that we're saying, Jesus isn't enough for me. I need something beyond Jesus, more than Jesus. I need the next level of pain relief. I need a prescription, not a spiritual discipline. It's worth thinking about. Jesus said, hey, don't go to sleep. Rise and pray. In the very next verses, the multitude is going to come and arrest Jesus. They're going to scatter his followers. The disciples had wasted their opportunity to prepare for the temptation. Now it was upon them. Still, he told them prayer would allow them to resist it. 
We'll read in subsequent weeks that they didn't do well during that time of temptation. For example, Peter, when the multitudes come to arrest Jesus, Peter draws one of their two swords and he attempts to fight his way out. Peter was eager to fight with a sword, but he was not prepared to fight with spiritual weapons. Prayer would have given him the insight he needed to resist the temptation using the spiritual resources available to him. As an example, Jesus prayed... And when the multitude came, he remained calm and in control of the entire situation. He had settled in his heart that, yes, this is the night that I was born for. I'm going to the cross. And when they came for him, he conversed with them. He identified himself. He revealed to them that he had the power, if necessary, to overcome them. But he willingly went with them. And throughout that whole night and the next day, he drew upon the resources of heaven in a remarkable way. As opposed to Peter, who groggily got up and started hacking away at people with a sword, which was not the way to go. It's not unusual to find yourself being overwhelmed by something that God has allowed. This happens to me all the time. And for a while, I'm blowing it. I look for any way out. I look to every physical resource that I have. The Lord is always in the background telling me to pray. I go on instead seeking a sword so that I can fight my way out. He goes on patiently telling me to pray. If I'll finally stop looking at my own strength, God provides the spiritual resources I need to either end or oftentimes to endure what's happening. If you're a Christian, the obvious application is to pause and take inventory of our spiritual habits. Are you praying ahead of time? Do you pray at the time? There are two levels on which we could answer. One would be personal. The other would be public. Only you can perform your own personal inventory of your prayer habits. But I can tell you what will happen when you do. You'll come to the conclusion that you don't pray enough. It's the only possible conclusion that there is. And it's a glorious conclusion because what it is, it's a reminder that you want to pray. You you like spending time with the Lord. It's who wouldn't. I mean, Jesus is the most beautiful person in the, in the universe. Add to that everything that he's done on your behalf. Add to that that there's a depth of relationship with him that you can never fully comprehend. That he always loves you and draws you to himself and you're constantly able to fall in love with him over and over and over and over again. And so, of course, you want to spend time with the Lord. And and so but it's good because life is around us. One of the strategies, I think, of the enemy is to keep us distracted all the time and to make us think that there are more important things to do than pray. A lot of times people, they share something. You say, well, I'll pray for you. And you, you get that feeling from them that they don't think it's significant. I don't need prayer. I need help. No, you really we need to pray. And so so if you do that inventory, all of us come to that conclusion. It's a good conclusion. Public prayer, by its very nature, is something that's quantifiable. We can see easily if we are praying more or less as a fellowship in terms of coming together. Let me give you some raw data without any analysis, really. In 2004, about a dozen people attended our 24 hours of prayer during the peak hours of 7 to 9 p.m. on Friday night. This year, 2005, during those same hours, only the host, only one person was in attendance. Now, I recognize that it may be an anomaly. Uh, Could be that something unusual was happening. Maybe the Jupiter effect was taking place that night. I don't know. I'm I'm just, 
or and I mean this sincerely. We could be asleep. Jesus closest disciples. Hearing words right from his lips, seeing him face to face, knowing what was going on, they fell asleep when they should have been praying. At least we have to hold into our own minds the possibility that we could be doing that. And that we need to, as a fellowship, pray more. Come together for prayer. It would thrill me to no end. I would go out of my mind, probably. And and this is what some of you want anyway. And so, if our pre-study prayer times on Sunday morning at 8.40, or what, what are they? 7.45 and 9.45. If the upper room, prayer room, was just packed out. I can foresee people being so into it that they they miss the service. They say, I'm just going to stay up here and pray for the service because there are people that need to get saved. There are people that need to to bring their life into alignment with the word of God. I mean, we I think we do need a revival in prayer. I need one personally and we need one corporately. And it's not a rebuke. It's a it's a joy to think that. I mean, the truth is we're either praying together or we're not. And if we're not, we need to be. And so let's do that and see what the Lord will do with it. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian at all. There are always folks here who are not yet believers in Jesus Christ. The blood he sweat and would later shed on the cross as he was crucified. It was for you. Your own good works or your religion or your philosophy. Your own belief system is going to leave you bankrupt when it comes time to pay for the wages of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is what? Death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. That's what is coming to you as a human being if you can't pay for your own sins. And you can't unless you have in your account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Imputed to you. Not earned. Not deserved. Simply given to you. Why? Because you understand that you're a sinner and that Jesus died in your place as your substitute, as a sacrifice for your sin. And you humble yourself under that mighty revelation and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're not a Christian or you're not sure, this is the decision that you face. This is the moment that you've come to. Will you trust Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for these things. I thank you for the simplicity, really, of the gospel. I feel like sometimes I make it more complicated than it really is. There are sinners. You're a savior. All they need to do is call out to you, call upon you, cry out to you. Acknowledge that they're sinners in need of your saving. I pray that any who are here today, Lord, that have not made that transaction. They don't have your righteousness in their account. I pray that they would receive it, Lord, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, for those of us who walk with you and love you, Lord, I pray that we would become those who are interested, Lord, in spending more time with you. That we would... Spiritually speaking, stand and look towards heaven, knowing that you hear us from there, that it's from there that you dispense grace and mercy into our lives. Lord, there are people in this room who are suffering greatly. They're hurting in many ways, some physically, some emotionally. Marriages are falling apart. Children are wayward. 
They've lost their job. There are many different things that are going on. The world is pulling us one way, giving us certain options or suggesting certain things. And Lord, you confidently are looking at us saying, stand up, pray, get into my presence, understand what I'm doing in your life. Receive from me grace, which is always sufficient mercy in your time of need. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be prone to that. Jesus, as you first went to your father. You didn't go to the disciples. You didn't go to anywhere. You went to your father and sought him and did what he told you to do. I pray that that would be our pattern as well. Lord, we love you and we're pleased to fall in love with you again and again. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some folks will be down here to pray with you after the service. If uh, you so desire, we love doing that. I do want to encourage you to uh, get up. Get up early next week and come and pray on Sunday morning with uh, the guys and gals that are up there now. And, and just let the Lord begin to work. bring your whole family. You don't have to say anything. Just be there and, and pray. And let's see what the Lord will do with that. Only if you want to. Uh, we're not trying to force anybody to do anything. Only if you want to. When we pray, God will work among us in a tremendous way. I, we all know that. We all believe that. And so let's do that. Tonight, 5 o'clock. Be there or be square, as they used to say. It's a lot of fun. Whether you have kids or not, you can have a blast. It's a great place to get to know people. A lot of new faces. You say, man, I don't know who even comes first service. As far as you know, there may not even really be a first service. Might all just be on paper. But uh, there is, and there's people you don't know. So come and let's have a neat time of fellowship and, and just sharing with one another. May God bless and keep you. Help us unload the... Hey, if you can, if you can't, we'll understand, but uh, we could use some help. God bless you. Amen. A deep, deep flood and ocean flows from you. A deep, deep flood.
Amen. Have a great day. Hope to see you tonight.